The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Six, Mistakes and Repair. Jen dropped off Martin and Joni at the end of Walden Circle. The walk to her house was awkwardly quiet. Martin tried to make light conversation, but they all fizzled out. His mind created 3D models of how Filter H might best incorporate the triangular punches. That is, if Joni had that punch. If she had the tools, he would offer to rent them. He could pay in corn. If she didn't have the tools, if she merely purchased an inventory of knickknacks from China for resale, he would buy the cheapest one she had as an act of charity. Until he knew if she actually possessed the tools, he would be careful not to say too much. As they got near her driveway, Joni turned toward him. Could you just stay here for a few minutes? I need to uh, do a few things inside first. Oh, sure, Martin understood. A house gets untidy, even in good times. No doubt she wanted to pick up a bit before he came in. I'll wave from the front door when it's time, she said quietly. She hurried up the driveway and inside the front door. While he waited, Martin looked around the neighborhood. He had seldom walked down Walden. As a cul-de-sac, he had no reason to. The house at the end of the street looked abandoned. The house across the street had black plastic taped inside all of the windows. Martin took that to mean it was occupied. The house next to that had plywood on the lower windows. Looking around the yards, Martin noticed there were no small trees. A few middle-aged oaks stood in the backyards, but no saplings. There were small stumps in Joni's yard, where people usually planted bushes. Joni stood on the front porch and gave a little wave for Martin to come in. On his way up the sidewalk, Martin got a better look at the bush stumps. They were split and frayed, almost as if chewed off. They weren't cleanly chewed off like a beaver chews. They were more frayed and ripped. Martin wondered if hungry deer or maybe a moose might eat like that. The thought that there might be a deer or two in the woods was encouraging. In the front hallway, Martin noticed that the house was no warmer than outside. Joni stood in the hallway in front of Martin, looking down. So uh, where do you keep your metal art? Martin tried to dispel the awkwardness with a casual tone. He imagined that she would bring a few things out to show him. He then planned to ask her how she made them and draw out whether or not she actually did make them. This way, she led down the hallway. Martin glanced in the living room as they passed the arched opening. A jumble of colorful sleeping bags, pillows, and blankets were strewn in front of a fireplace hearth. No fire burned in the fireplace. A few broom-handle-sized sticks and one turned piece, like a chair leg, lay on one side of the hearth. A glance in the dining area at the other end of the room revealed a lone wooden chair with similarly turned legs. The bleakness briefly interrupted Martin's thoughts about sheet metal tools. Off of the kitchen was a room that might have been a formal dining room at some point, but Joni had converted it to a metal shop. Martin walked in with his mouth hanging open. She didn't buy her knickknacks from China. She had a workbench with a drill press and vices. She had a sheet metal brake. Martin ran his hand along the slip roller. Oh, this'll be great for... 
He turned to tell Joni about making cones for vortex filters, but she was gone. Hmm, must have had to tend to the kids upstairs or something. Martin guessed that she had two children, based on the pink ponies and Power Ranger sleeping bags. He found the punch press that made the triangular hood scoops. There were shelves along one wall with sheets of aluminum, galvanized steel, and copper. A portable brazing torch sat in the corner. Behind the punch press sat a small box containing other punches and dies. His mind swirled with the possibilities, until interrupted by a creak in the floorboard behind him. Joni stood in the doorway, looking at him, though not in the eye. She looked shorter than Martin remembered. Glancing down, he saw that she was in stocking feet. He hadn't noticed that her boots had tall heels, but then he didn't usually notice fashion details. I need two hundred dollars, she said as she slowly unzipped her ski sweater. There was no shirt beneath the sweater, not even a red bra. What? No, Martin exclaimed. Then one hundred, she pleaded. I have to have some money, she continued to unzip the sweater. Martin dropped the box of dyes and rushed to pull her zipper back up. What are you doing? She was taken aback by his reaction. Please, I need the money. My kids haven't eaten in three days. I need to buy food. But that doesn't mean you should... You should have asked for help. I did, she began to tear up. I asked my neighbors, but they didn't have any to spare. I asked about the town farm, but they said there was a waiting list. I, I tried asking that grading man for just a few ears of corn. He said he, said he only takes money. Her voice broke. Uh, I tried to trade him my wedding ring. Pure gold. Five diamonds. He, he only laughed. He said I had only one thing worth trading. From the look on his face, I knew exactly what he meant. She began to cry. I didn't know what to say. I ran home. As her crying intensified, she leaned against the door jamb for support. But I realized he was right. That is all I have left. I need to feed my kids. Well, no, protested Martin. He had little experience with crying women. Margaret was generally even-keeled. Even when Lindsay was going through her volatile teenage years, she was usually happy, with partly scattered sullen from time to time, but never weepy. Martin didn't know this Joni at all. He had no business putting an arm around her or any other sort of comforting things he might think of, so he simply stood by looking awkward. I couldn't with him, she sobbed. He's so gross, but I have to with, with someone for money. You seemed nice. You were the only one who came up to my table at the trading sessions and talked to me. I figured you had some money. It wouldn't be so bad. So when I heard you were looking for me, I figured that... No, 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 no. It's, it's nothing like that. I wanted to know more about your metalworking tools. I'm working on a project. She looked up in horror. What? Oh, my God! I was going to... Uh, yeah, but you didn't. Martin quickly waved off the very notion. Joni crumbled to her knees on the kitchen floor, sobbing loudly. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! The door to the garage flew open. A slender man in a rumpled-down coat burst in. What's going on? What have you done to her? He demanded. What? Uh, nothing. Martin stood aside as the man rushed over to Joni, slowly lifting her with his arm around her shoulder. I didn't do anything to her. She was just about to... 
Joni suddenly looked up at Martin with a wild horror in her eyes. She shook her head. Uh, she was telling me how your kids haven't eaten in three days, Martin improvised. She buried her face in her hands. A boy of six and a girl of about four walked timidly in from the garage. Joni sagged in her husband's arms. He struggled to keep her standing. Yeah, so what's it to you? The man snipped. Why are you even here? Because I'm working on a project that needs a metal worker with tools like she has. Martin hadn't actually planned to hire Joni. He had half envisioned renting her tools, but at the moment, making it sound like a job just flowed out of his mouth. What? Joni looked up, choking back sobs already in the pipeline. Um, yeah, Martin searched for words. We've had trouble making a filter for our gasifier that works well enough. I'd like to, uh, have you work on it with us. He realized that offering work also meant discussing wages. Then, when she mentioned that your kids hadn't eaten in three days, I thought maybe I would pay her up front to get started. Martin slung around his backpack and fished out the two loaves of bread on top. He handed one to each child. They tore through the plastic and began devouring the loaves in rapid, desperate bites. Whoa there, kids, Martin cautioned. Oh, not too fast. It'll only make you throw up. Both kids looked up in horror at the thought of throwing up. They looked at their father, their eyes asking what to do. He told them to take two more small bites and then wait a while. But they could keep their loaves in their hands. This mollified the boy. But the girl stared at her loaf, frustrated. Martin dug out the five ears of corn that he had been given. Uh, here, here's something for later, too. He handed them to the husband. He relaxed his hold on Joni in order to accept the corn. She was standing on her own. Um, my name is Steve. Sorry I yelled at you. She was crying. I, I didn't know. I got something bad. Well, don't worry about it, Steve. Uh, my name is Martin. Martin Simmons. Martin held his hand out for Steve to shake. We're kind of neighbors. I live farther down Old Stockman Road. The White House with the uh, split rail fence uh, on the dirt part? Steve's face held a blank expression. We don't go that way very often. Oh, uh, that's all right. Just a geo-reference. You'll have to boil that corn, which can take hours. I'll explain how in a bit. Might be good to get a fire going now so you can be cooking on it before too long. Those loaves of bread won't last long. Oh, uh, okay. Steve's eyes searched mental inventories. We don't have much left, but I'll find something. He pulled a big serrated carving knife off the counter. It was the sort of knife that only saw duty on Thanksgiving. Martin then realized that the bushes had not been eaten by animals, but had been gnawed on by a carving knife. Steve walked toward the front door. He had to tell the children, following in his wake, to go wait in the living room. He allowed them two more bites of bread, which made them smile and comply. Oh, my God, I feel so... I, I, I don't know what to say, stammered Joni quietly. You don't have to say anything, Martin said. In fact, I don't think you said much of anything. I was going to talk about making filter parts, but you broke down about your hungry kids before we could really get started. That's when Steve came in. Right? Joni wiped her eyes and smiled a sad smile as she fought back a new sob. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, that's how I remember it anyhow, Martin smiled. So let's get down to business. That funnel turkey of yours has those little punches all around. I want you to make me a cone about this big that has all those little punches going all around, all facing clockwise. Joni sniffed hard, squared her shoulders for business. Okay, I would need some real dimensions and some idea of spacing. Well, I can get you that. Well, better yet, maybe you should come by and see what we have. You might have some other ideas to make it easier to assemble, etc. Martin looked out into the kitchen. No one was there. He cleared his throat. I know we're not talking about something that didn't happen, but Steve and the kids were in the garage? Joni hung her head and nodded. I told him to take the kids out and play camp out in the car for an hour because I was going to talk to someone about a loan, and I didn't want the kids interrupting. Ah, well, I'm glad you didn't have to uh, take out a loan. Oh, I can't believe I actually thought... Uh, but you didn't, Martin interrupted. This is just business. Look, this project isn't a lifetime employment thing. It's just a little project that's almost done. You'll still need to figure out something for down the line. And I don't mean loans. Steve came back in with an armload of sticks. He peeked into the workroom, checking on Joni. Everything okay in here? Yes, Joni said. Martin was just explaining what he needs for his project. Um, is that all the wood you found? Martin asked carefully. That won't make much of a fire. Steve frowned at the armful of sticks. This is all I could find. There isn't much of anything left out there. I do still have one chair left, he said bitterly. Oh, well, Martin realized that he'd stepped on a sore nerve. It's just that boiling corn will take a bit more than that. Maybe I can go out and help you find some more. I told you, there's nothing else out there I can get. Well, call me stubborn, but let's go see anyhow. Maybe we can round up something. Martin tried a big smile, but those seldom worked on other guys. It didn't work here either. Oh, come on, let's go see, Joni offered. Steve shot her a disapproving look, but relented. How far does your property run? Martin asked. Are any of these woods back here yours? Back to that rock wall, said Steve. But I've already taken out everything I can get with this. He held up his turkey carving knife. Martin wondered why he had nothing more than that, but knew it was not a good time to ask. Yeah, well, that would be a problem. Actually, you've done pretty well, considering what you have to work with. Martin hoped a little positive spin might cheer up the sullen Steve. He studied the patch of woods at the back of the Bain property. There was no understory or lower branches. Anything slender enough to gnaw through with a turkey carver was gone. A small tree, maybe three inches in diameter, had a band of bark mangled off of it. In the back, a slender, long-dead pine caught Martin's eye. Patches of bark had already fallen off, so it had been dead for several years. He reasoned that the wood was probably dry enough to burn well, and the roots might well be decayed. It looks like you got a bit more work to do here on your property. But until we can get you some better tools, we'll have to resort to some caveman tech. They both looked at him with skepticism. You've got a dead pine tree back there, 
It's not big, and pine burns fast, but it's something. Let's see what we can do. Martin imagined that he would have to return later with his saw. When he got to the pine, which was maybe six or seven inches in diameter at the base, he guessed that his saw wouldn't be necessary. Well, this little guy has some lean to it, Martin said. He pushed hard on the trunk and felt it give slightly. The roots might be rotten enough. I think we can push it over. Let's all push as high up on the trunk as you can reach. We'll push it in waves to see if we can get a little bounce rhythm going. Okay? Ready? One, two, three, push! One, two, three, push! The tree swayed a little more with each push. On the sixth or seventh push, the pine didn't bounce back, but stalled. A soft cracking sound could be heard at their feet. Stand to one side, Martin cautioned. They can be frisky and sometimes kick up. The little pine wasn't frisky, but fell in slow motion as rotten roots gave way. It crashed down, the top third breaking off as it fell. Steve looked surprised that they were able to push over a tree. Joni jumped around, fist-pumping the air. He showed them how they could use two close-together tree trunks to break long, thinner sections into manageable pieces. They dragged the larger portion of the trunk over to the rock wall so that a third of it overhung. Using a basketball-sized rock with a sharp edge, Martin power-bombed the trunk where it crossed the rock wall. He got tired quickly. Here, he handed the rock to Steve. Hit that notch with this sharp edge of the rock, just like you saw me doing. <sighs> We're making a weak spot. When the notch was almost halfway through, he had Steve and Joni sit on the end of the two-thirds while he jumped off the rock wall to land on the free end with both feet. It was a sort of foolhardy move that a young boy might do, and assured him of hurting somewhere, but it was expedient. On the fourth jump, the trunk broke. Martin took an uncontrolled tumble and ended up with a mouthful of leaves and a scrape on one hand. He couldn't complain, though. Steve was actually smiling, and Joni was double fist-pumping. Okay, now you guys have something to work with. Granted, this is still pine, so it'll burn pretty fast, but not as fast as sticks. While they were dragging the chunks and sections to the house, Steve wondered how they would ever fit such long pieces in their fireplace. When they got inside, Martin showed them how they could feed the longer ends of the logs in from the front, over the top of the fire. This could either burn sections through, or just keep being fed into the fire. It's a little time-intensive, Martin said. You can't just light the fire and walk off. You have to keep feeding it, and making sure they're just close enough together. Once they had a fire started, and it looked like they could feed in the pine logs, Martin excused himself to go home. He suggested that Joni come over later, after they had some bread, too. The two kids sat as close to the fire as their parents would allow. They basked in the warmth. You what? Margaret tilted her head as if she hadn't heard him correctly. I had to give them the bread, Martin said. Their kids hadn't eaten in three days. The parents hadn't eaten in five. I couldn't just look at all of that and carry the bread away. Well, no, Margaret agonized. She had been looking forward to Connie's sourdough bread for almost a week. Yet she also knew how impossible it can be to not help someone in need. But I still have the starter. Martin pulled out the little plastic tub from his backpack. 
Margaret snatched it out of his hands, peeled off the lid, and sniffed the contents. Mmm, yeast, she said with her eyes closed. Okay, I'm not as mad about the bread anymore. Well, good, Martin chuckled. I wouldn't want you to be mad. Oh, that reminds me. That Clyde guy is mad at me for helping that Trevor kid at the hearing. What? What's it to him? Margaret asked. No idea. I guess he just wanted Trevor shot and I mucked it up for him. The result is that he won't sell me corn anymore. Now that he's crowned himself king, I should lay low. Well, that's okay, said Dustin. Judy or I could go. I don't think he'd associate us with you like he might with Mom or Susan. Martin cringed inside at his choice of words. Margaret didn't seem to notice, but Susan did. She looked up from cutting carrots in the kitchen. Their eyes met for only a moment before she returned to her work. Joni is supposed to come over later to check out what we need, said Martin. He tore off a quarter of flatbread and stole one of the carrot slices from the cutting board. Susan slapped his hand. Hey, Martin protested. A momentary twinkle got through her poker face. Tin Man was smoking along. The generator puttered loudly. Sparks from Nick's welder showered down the side of the truck. New brackets would hold the gasifier in place in the front right corner of the truck's flatbed. To keep the other fittings from developing leaks, it all had to be secured down. Things couldn't move while the truck was in motion over uneven roads. Charles had Filter C's cylinder and cone disassembled. Martin searched their bone pile for a set of matching bolts. Joni peeked under the hemlock branches as she walked up. Um, hi, um, hello? Martin waved her over and made some introductions. Charles and Tyler had their best yes-ma'am manners on. They showed her the whole gasifier setup. Martin explained the gasifying process, thinking it would help her understand how her work would fit in. From her fixed smile, he wasn't sure how much she understood. It was a lot to absorb all at once. While Charles held up the cylinder and cone as visual aids, Martin tried to explain the dynamics behind vortex filters. He went on to explain his theory of venting off air pressure at the bottom of the cone to slow the velocity and, hopefully, cause the lightweight ash to fall out rather than stay in suspension. The look on her face said, Okay, whatever. She liked getting some fixed dimensions for the needed cone much better than the theory behind it. I think I understand what you need, she said. I can make that outer cone shell, too, if you want. Aluminum should work. Uh, what does that thing over there have to do with your gasifier thing? She pointed to a T-shaped wooden frame set up on concrete blocks nearby. Carlos was chiseling in some mortises for the angle braces, making a triangle out of the top of the T. Yeah, well, actually nothing, Martin said. That's a whole separate project. We're making a four-wheel buggy for Jen, the lady that gave us the ride to your house. You know how spacious and comfortable her two-wheel trap is. Joni looked at him with a, you're kidding, right, look. She wasn't accustomed to his dry sarcasm. Ah, well, I see you do, Martin smiled. So we're rigging up something with four wheels, more room for seating and cargo, and springs. She plans to do something like Tyler and Charles, just closer to home. Carlos is finishing up the subframe. That'll get the wheels. The upper frame will sit on springs. We're all looking forward to riding on springs, let me tell you. 
And speaking of wheels, here comes my son Dustin. How did you do with your wheeling and dealing? Get it? Huh? Wheeling? Yes, Dad. Very clever. Dustin rolled his eyes. The guy on West Road wouldn't budge. A thousand bucks or nothing, he said. So I said, nothing. Would have been nice if he would deal. His wheels would have matched better. Well, we're not out for looks, Martin said. And a thousand bucks is just nuts. No one's got that. Yeah, I know, continued Dustin. But the guy with the Kawasaki was willing to part with the whole bike for half of one of Mom's cheeses. Uh, it didn't run anyway. From that, we'll get a pair of green-rimmed wheels. The guy with the Suzuki accepted a more reasonable offer of twenty bucks for both wheels, if we'd throw in a brick of twenty-twos. I told him I'd have to ask you first, since it's ammo. His wheels are nice, because they're also twenty-ones, like the Kawasaki. It's just that they don't match. They're yellow, not green. Well, good job, Dustin, good job. Uh, when can we pick him up? Well, right now, for the Suzuki wheels. He's just a couple of houses up the highway from the end of our road. Does that mean you're okay with the brick of 22? Well, yeah, we're good on 22. Game is getting scarce anyhow, and we need the wheels. Why don't you go get the brick, the Federal box? I'll walk up with you, Martin said. Well, partway anyway. Do you have all the dimensions you need? Martin asked Joni. She studied her paper with a furrowed brow. I think so. Uh, this shouldn't take too long. I think it's just amazing what you've been doing at your place, Joni said as the three of them walked together up Old Stockman Road. We could hear your generator every now and then and wondered why you had so much gasoline and what you were doing. I'm sorry to say we kind of thought the worst. Worst? Martin wondered what the dark side of a generator running might be. We thought you were a rich stuck-up type watching movies on DVDs or, or making cappuccinos or something. She looked embarrassed at the confession. We kind of hated you. We imagined you were living it up while we were cold and running out of food. <laughs> no, no cappuccino or movies. No time for that. But I had no idea, she continued, that you were working on things, working on solutions to things. Everyone at your house seemed, uh, I don't know, happy. No one on my street is happy. Our neighbors across the street act like they're just waiting to die. She hung her head. I guess we were too when the food ran out. That's why I was so desperate to do anything. Martin quickly cleared his throat and nodded toward Dustin, walking beside him. Oh, uh, so it really cheered up the kids when you helped us bring in that dead tree for firewood. She held a broad smile. Dustin hadn't noticed. It's surprising how much of a morale booster a fire can be, said Martin. That's why I'm bringing my two-man saw over. I noticed you had a dead shagbark in your woods, too. That's the one with the top half broken. We won't be able to push that one over. That should give you guys a week's worth of wood, at least. I'm going to talk to my friend Lance. He lives further down the road. I think he might have a saw he's not using. No, oh, that would be so wonderful. Joni gushed. You've been so helpful. I can't thank you enough, she finished with a girlish giggle. Dustin looked at Martin with a raised eyebrow. Martin shrugged. Yeah, okay, well, this is Walden, said Martin. That's her house over there, the light green one. When you've got the wheels, stop by and I'll help you carry them home. Where's Daddy? Joni asked her son. 
He went to get more water. The boy pointed to the hearth where the buckets had been. Martin squirmed in his coat. Oh, well, if uh, Steve's not here, uh, we should go back outside. It'll be okay, said Joni. Ah, uh, maybe. But we should get a head start on that shag bark. Dustin won't be long. Oh, okay. Martin let out a small sigh of relief to not be in the house. He had hopes that Joni would be passable with the two-man saw, but she was too enthusiastic. All of Martin's power strokes were negated by her pushing too hard and too fast. The blade bowed up or down, binding in the slot. Despite the lack of anything resembling a rhythm, the broken hickory eventually fell. Joni's excitement meant that the cutting up the hickory went even slower. They hauled the more manageable sections up to the house, but Martin declined to go inside. Steve trudged up through the woods at the end of the cul-de-sac, a five-gallon bucket in each hand. Martin was surprised that they hadn't gotten sick from drinking straight river water, but kept that to himself. The power of suggestion is a terrible thing. He helped them set up a gravity-fed filter using sand and charcoal from their fireplace. He cautioned that drinking water ought to be boiled, just in case. Joni rigged up a cooking grate. Martin explained the corn-to-hominy process. Joni took notes. Dustin knocked at the door. It was time to go. The boy, Keaton, was disappointed he couldn't show Martin all of his Power Ranger gear. Martin had to pry little Kylie off his leg. The kids were more elated about being warm than being fed. So, Dustin began cautiously as they walked down the driveway, that lady seemed really happy. Yeah, I really hadn't thought about how well-blessed we are at our house, Martin said. Sure, the outage has scrambled our old routines, but we have heat, water, food, light. It's easy to take things for granted. That family back there has almost nothing. Nothing but raw water from a river. I'm kind of surprised how little people can survive on. I felt really bad for them, and a little guilty. Just getting a decent fire going does wonders. Do you think her metal cone thing will make a difference? Well, I hope so. I spent five ears of corn and two loaves of bread on it. The next day dawned clear and calm. The sun rose between the trees, melting off stripes of heavy frost across the yard. Joni arrived before Tyler and Charles, but she, Martin, and Dustin managed to get the cone fitted to the cylinder. I still can't thank, Joni squeezed the pop rivet until it popped. You enough for this. I know I keep saying that, but it's true. It feels great to actually be doing something again. Well, busy is better, Martin said cautiously. But, like I said earlier, this isn't a forever thing. This is just one project. He didn't want her to feel like she had found lifetime employment. His resources couldn't support his current household indefinitely, let alone another family of four. Oh, I know that. She paused to squeeze off another pop rivet. But I'm going to bet this isn't the last of these gasifier things you're going to make. Another rivet popped. Because, you know, with a little custom metalwork, you wouldn't have to rely on junk. Pop. As much. She smiled. I really like that you're doing something. She inserted another pop rivet. Steve has been next to useless since this thing all came down. Martin cringed inside. He never liked to hear one spouse talking poorly of the other. 
It had always been the tip of a very dark iceberg. Oh, I don't know. He was pretty quick at gathering the, uh, sticks. It was lame praise, and he knew it. Oh, please. Steve is the most unhandy guy I know. He couldn't use a screwdriver without hurting himself, or he won't even go in a Home Depot. I had to show him how to use that knife to cut down the sticks after he broke my hacksaw. He's a software guy. Apparently, he's really good at what he does, or did. I never understood what that was. Didn't matter much if I understood. He made good money. We had a comfy life. We could hire handymen to fix things. Life was good, she grimaced, squeezing the pop rivet tool at an awkward angle. But there's no hiring people now. I thought it was amazing, she continued, how you set up that water filter and helped with the firewood and that boiled corn thing. In just a couple of visits, you improved things so much. Keaton thinks you're a power ranger in disguise. Kylie thinks you're Santa Claus or, or something. Martin squirmed more. He was delighted to see Charles and Tyler walking across the road, a welcome diversion. Uh, hey, guys, uh, we've almost got Filter H rigged in. Time for the big test. Charles and Dustin scooped chips into the hopper. Martin lipped the paper at the bottom of the burn chamber. The fan pulled the white, steamy smoke out of the jet. Using a smoking roll of paper, they checked for vacuum leaks. The filter assembly needed a few small patches of aluminum foil. The quart jar at the bottom of the vortex filter showed some accumulation of ash already. When the smoke turned blue-gray, Charles inserted the white cloth for the ash test. It came out clean. Optimistic smiles bloomed. A second test with the cloth also came out clean. The flow rate of the smoke was strong. The jet ignited easily and held a vigorous blue flame. I say we go for it, said Charles. Martin and Tyler agreed. Everyone else in the house, except those out on patrol, stood around the truck with hopeful looks of anticipation. Tyler climbed into the driver's seat and nodded. Martin stood ready on the switching valve. Tyler cranked the engine. Martin switched the valve. The smoke petered out from the jet. The starter whined and whined, but the engine didn't catch. Martin urged Tyler to try again. The starter whined again. Martin turned the bypass valve until it was almost closed. The engine fired on two or three cylinders. Tyler cranked the starter again. The engine sputtered to life. Martin gradually opened the bypass valve until the engine ran smoothly. Everyone cheered. Nick joined Martin in the bed of the truck, scooping in bigger loads of chips. It was time for the drive test. Martin planned to show Nick how to feed and manage the gasifier so he could be the fireman on Charles's trip to the coast. The old Ford rode hard, but after Jen's trap, it was still an upgrade. At the end of the road, Tyler turned around. He wanted a load of passengers in the truck's bed to test the gasifier under load. Margaret, Anna, Joni, and Susan climbed in the back. Lucas wouldn't take no for an answer. The sound of an engine, even a clattering old straight six, was a double shot of caffeine to Lucas. Riding in the back of the truck felt like they were on an old home day's parade, without the bunting. The engine seemed to have sufficient power, though it did sputter and labor a little going up Stockman Hill. Tyler wanted a bigger load test. He stopped by his house and hooked up their going-to-the-dump trailer. 
he planned to take a half a cord of firewood to the coast as a trading commodity. This was as good a time as any to get that load and test drive with it. On the way to town, the one-float parade met Chief Berg and Jeff Landers walking toward them on the side of the road. Hey, waved Tyler from the driver's seat. What are you two doing out here? Berg and Landers looked at each other, as if expecting the other to speak first. Berg decided it should be him. He glanced up at Martin with a sympathetic look. Well, boys, it's kind of complicated, but we've been sent to arrest Martin Simmons. Martin managed to avoid one huge problem, but a different sort of trouble found him anyway. I've been a little disappointed in Podbean's advertising marketplace. I made the podcast available and even set a really low rate hoping to attract an advertiser. Nothing yet. There is still my Buy Me a Coffee page if you wanted to throw a couple of bucks my way. If you prefer Patreon, my page is at patreon.com slash mick underscore Roland. Check it out. 